Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week week slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this wig. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just Beaming at I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Hello, you're listening to The Stages Podcast, and I'm Peter Ayers. We journey to the theatre of Broadway in this episode as Stages features veteran Broadway performer Michael Masita. I first encountered Michael through his arresting musings and engaging writings on Facebook, where he recalls a stellar career on Broadway and in Los Angeles, alongside considered reflections of all that drives humanity. During the 1970s especially, Michael was a featured performer and dancer in a slew of productions on The Great White Way. He was in the original companies of the short-lived The Fig Leaves Are Falling, following that up with seminal works such as Stephen Sondheim's Follies. Applause and Equus. He was also in Pippin on Broadway. He had won regular employment in a wondrous industry that provided him opportunities to work with a host of luminaries. Lauren Bacall, Anne Miller, Bob Fosse, Michael Bennett, Richard Burton, Dorothy Loudon and Tommy Tune, just to name a few. Michael now enjoys retirement in Hawaii and it was there that I eventually got to meet him in person during a recent visit. And he didn't disappoint. Charming, erudite and still passionate about the life he carved in the theatre. Michael Masita is the perfect guest. He insightfully provides recollection of what it was like to work in those seminal musicals and the key artists with whom he was blessed to work alongside. Well, Michael Masita, aloha all the way over in Hawaii. Is it another perfect day in paradise? Uh, It started out as a perfect day in paradise, but now it got kind of cold. Oh, really? And not cold like they're having cold. But for cold for us, it's like 65 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, we met recently when I was on uh, my Christmas vacation in uh, in Hawaii. And I know it was your winter. And my goodness, it was it was just glorious. It was uh, like yeah. a, a very a summer's day in, in Sydney. It's pretty much perpetual summer. Uh, now, Michael, of course, I, I first encountered you when we became Facebook friends through your, right. your your writings uh from your career on on Broadway as a Broadway dancer I imagine your your readership has grown and grown and grown because I'm aware of many Australians who follow you and hang on to every wonderful word you say about uh, your time as a as a dancer oh that's nice to hear I don't really know like I don't know how many people are friends or not but I uh I just kind of do it because I enjoy writing it you know, and people do read it. So that's kind of fun. Have you thought about writing a book? You know, people are always asking me to write a book, but I've written books. And I, at this point, I feel like uh, Facebook is my book. I don't know that I have the gumption to sit down and put it all together and do all, and then try to promote it and everything. 
uh, I kind of just enjoy writing as it comes to me. Yeah. And, you know, I, I really would, I don't think I would write if I wasn't on Facebook. Uh, I, it sort of gives me a reason to do it. And I think our generation may be the first generation to really share their stories, uh, you know, online like that. And so every time I hear somebody say something, it reminds me of an incident that happened to me or whatever. And that's all I need to just write. Well, hopefully I'll drop a few of those cues today and um, you can uh, share okay. more, of your, more of your wonderful, wonderful anecdotes. Um, I think the attraction also, certainly for me personally, is that you are a link to a Broadway of yesterday that perhaps uh, no longer exists. And I'm talking particularly about the creatives that, that you worked with uh, along that time who are no longer with us, sadly. Um, and creating the work that they, of course, they did in that, that um, well, the golden era was in the 50s and 60s, but you were working more in the the late 60s, 70s? Yeah. Actually, 70s, well, I think in the 80s, I, I had already moved to California. I worked on Broadway for 11 years, I think. 11 years yeah that, that my research proves that correct <laughs> and you, you never did a show <laughs> <Does it? laughs> you never you know most of these things you're talking about I, I don't even think about <laughs> you know even when I write I I'm, I'm writing because I kind of want to it's I enjoy doing it and uh then sometimes I'm surprised like you said people in Australia read some of them I Sometimes I belong to so many Broadway sites that I don't really realize where somebody's from unless they tell me, you know, but I, but I, I really enjoy it. And uh, in fact, the other day, actually, I sometimes feel as though the, the people who weren't on Broadway that listen to listen or read around all these sites about Broadway, uh, they, I learn more from them than they probably learn from me because Taken Follies, for instance, when we were out of town with Follies. Well, I found out that shows don't go out of town anymore. I literally found that out yesterday. I did. I, you know, do you know what I know? Uh, mean by out of town? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, where you go for three or six weeks to try out the show and we're in front of an audience, and apparently they all do it in in New York now. It may be the expense or something. I, I don't know, but. You know, someone will ask me, uh, like on the Folly site, for instance, someone will mention Alexis Smith's dress that she wore in the beginning and what color it was and all this. Then they say, well, ask Michael. I have no idea. I, 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 never, I, I was working. I wasn't sitting there like looking at like, oh, she's changing her dress or wig or anything. You know, I, I wasn't aware of most of that stuff. So it's kind of fun to read what these other people say, people who saw it and whatnot, all the shows. Um, but basically, I tried to get across them. Uh, you do understand I was on stage at the time. I wasn't really paying much attention to any of that. Oh, and Michael, I can't remember what I did yesterday, yesterday let alone 40 years in a show. Tell me about it. That's the <laughs> truth. Uh, you know, uh, being on with you tonight or today or tonight or whatever time it is over there, um, I had to keep reminding myself. I have little posts put all over the house reminding myself, not because I would forget to do the interview, because I would forget that it's Saturday here. You know, I I kept asking Bob, uh, what day is this? Is this, you know, because we don't know when you're retired, you really don't pay much attention to any of that. <laughs> so I make my notes myself everywhere. 
Michael, can we begin the conversation with with some of the uh, the greats that you had the fortune to to work with during your career, and and start off with the choreographers. Um, I know Tommy Tune was a great mentor of, of yours, and I, I believe you worked with with Tommy about eight times in your career. Uh, yes, um, I worked it with him at Milwaukee Melody Top. I was at the Boston Conservatory of Music. And in the summers, we would audition for uh, summer stock. And I worked, got to work eight shows in a row with Tommy. And, and knew him later when I went to New York as well. But he, he was very encouraging with me. And he's such a, a wonderful guy and still is. And, and he, was, he was a lot of fun to work with. You just alluded to a a form of theatre there, uh, which is perhaps um, foreign to certainly Australians, but but summer stock. Can you explain what what that was? Oh sure, this is another thing I'm not sure exists anymore, but um, I loved doing summer stock. Summer stock. Um, this particular theatre I was in was very well known. It was called Milwaukee Melody Top, and it was a great big like circus tent with a round round stage in the middle and then all the bleachers going up. And it sat about 5,000 people. And every major star would, would uh, they'd learn a role and then they'd go to all the summer stock theaters to perform that particular role. So we would rehearse the show for two weeks. And then uh, while we're doing another show for two weeks and then, and the star would come in like the last week and perform and the truth, thousands and thousands of people summer stock it was it was great fun and i could do it be, uh, when i was still in school but during the summer when i wasn't going and uh i think there's a lot of very fun memories of some of summer stock here in this country i don't really know if they have it elsewhere um and at a time also where you didn't have the franchised musical we see a lot of musicals today and wherever they're produced in the world they have to be done exactly as that original production which which originated with the same choreography the same sets same costume etc but uh at Summerstock at uh, at Milwaukee you did uh, Sweet Charity with Tommy and and Tommy choreographed it yes he did and Tommy also uh was one of the co-stars in, in like The Boyfriend or some of some of the other shows but he choreographed them and what was Really, it was exciting, first of all, getting the job and spending the summer in Milwaukee at this theater, just doing show after show. Uh, it was exciting to work with Tommy. It was exciting to work with uh, Gretchen Weiler, who at that time used to do a lot of shows that Gwen Verdon did. She was she was that type, but not quite as well known. But she she was on Broadway and everything as well. And she, she was fantastic. But the thing that excited me the most about going to do these shows was that they did Sweet Charity. And I had just seen my very first Broadway show ever at the Palace Theater in New York. And it was Sweet Charity with Gwen Verdon, who I would work with later. And uh, so I was so thrilled to be doing this show after seeing it on Broadway. Because from, when we were in school, we uh, I would go occasionally to Broadway, either to audition or just to spend a couple of days there. Well, speaking of Sweet Charity, what, what about Bob Fosse? I know that you were in Pippin for a little while. Did you ever get to work with the great Bob? Uh, I didn't. I, I, to tell you the truth, I was working all the time. So I was asked to do a couple of the shows that he was about to do, but I could never do them because I was already in another show. 
And uh, but Bob, I got a, a call from his secretary and then she later put him on the phone asking me if I, a friend of mine who was doing Pippin, the played Lewis, the bratty brother, um, was going away on vacation for for two weeks. And uh, he asked Bob Fossey asked me if if I could come in and do the show. And he apologized to me because I had to audition. Well, I mean, I, I said, oh, it doesn't bother me in the least. I'll be happy to come in and audition. But he said he couldn't just put me in the show because um, equity, the union, uh, had rules about you've got to give everybody a chance. You can't just pick people randomly and put them in a show. So I auditioned for it and I, I got it and did it for two weeks. And it was absolutely wonderful. One of my most favorite shows that I've ever been in uh, was Pippin. Because uh, his choreography is so sensual and sexy, and you know, he'd say, "Go from here to there, and do whatever you want to get there, but in my style." <laughs> and I love that. So every night you could do it just a little bit differently. And, and besides that, it was a really fun show to do. I I loved. It. I did it again uh, the following year. My same friend who was doing the role uh, went on vacation, but towards the end of it, he uh, got sick. He got hepatitis and they asked me to stay on for another three months. But I did it with all the original cast. Um, with Irene Ryan, I imagine, from the Beverly Hillbillies playing uh -huh. grandma. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and that that was one of my favorite things to do. I, I was some of the most fun I've ever had on stage was her singing and singing that song along with the audience and everything. It was, it was a lot of fun. It was a little corny, but fun corny. And, and one of the most magnificent opening numbers in, in any show, I think, with the, the magic to do. Oh, know, my God. We have a thing called the Act Actors Fund show because we were all in shows all the time. We often didn't. That This was back when you worked uh, Monday through Saturday, but you had Sunday off. And everybody was on that schedule, basically. So you couldn't go see someone else's show, but they would have a special performance for performers in all the other shows to come and watch. And we got to see it, I, I think, just after it opened, I believe. And that opening number, I, my mouth was down in my lap. I was just watching. I said, oh, my God, how do they do that? Well, you know, uh, for those who may not know this, uh, it's a it's the curtain goes up and it's all swirling colored smoke and and hands pass through like magic and back in again well we had black cloaks on and they would before the curtain would go up the lights were in the floor shooting upwards and uh uh as soon before the curtain would go up they would spray us with to this day, I don't want to know what it is they were spraying <laughs> with us with because it smelled an awful lot like mosquito repellent or something. But uh, as it would go up, where the lights were shooting up became a light curtain with swirling smoke around. And then we'd put a hand out and then uh, a leg out. And I was one of the first people to step through it and and sing to the audience and the, each one of us did that and then the number continued but i'd never seen anything like it before i mean it was so much fun to do and and exciting i love that show the genius of fossey of course uh, tell me this might be a silly yeah. question but did he always have a cigarette hanging out of his mouth pretty much when we he was at the audition of course when i went there but um 
also I was invited to a big party that he had in a place called Quogue on the East Coast. It's a very expensive, you, you rent houses and everything there. And he had a big party for the entire cast and, and I went. I'd only been in the show for a couple of days, but I went and he was, he was a lot of fun. For all the stories about Bobby, um, he was always really nice to me, really kind to me. And, uh, but he, I, I saw at one point they were playing volleyball in the pool a bunch of people. And he said, Mike, come on, get in. And I got in, but he had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth <laughs> in the pool. And I remember, I don't recall him ever actually smoking it. It just sort of hung there. I wrote a whole article about Bob Fosse and his cigarette at one point. I mean, would anybody recognize him without, without that cigarette? Yeah. Exactly. It was, exactly. It was, it was fun. He was, he was a great guy. So was Gwen Burton. Yeah. Um, a lovely a, a trademark accessory, it would seem. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. Yes, absolutely. Smoke. Yeah, yeah. T uh, yeah. Tell me about Ron Field, who choreographed you in applause. Oh, I, I loved working with Ron. He was a lot of fun. He was also the director of applause. And uh, he was uh, uh, great fun to work with and just would fool around with everybody. And I was doing a bit with Lauren Bacall. In the beginning, he said, come with me. And we went into the rehearsal room and she was sitting in the middle of the rehearsal studio with all the producers and everybody sitting in front of her. And he, I walked in and because he said, I want to introduce you to her because you're doing this bit with her. I was taking out a, an award, Tony Award to her. And uh, she was sitting there and she had this stack of pictures of herself and she was throwing each one on the floor going no 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 which kind of scared me because i thought oh my god you know i'm gonna meet this woman what if she doesn't like me or something but she stood up gave me a great big hug and everything and she goes by betty bacall that's her actual her, that's betty is her actual name so people who know her don't call her lauren they call her betty but she was terrific you know i i have to say i have loved just about every single person, director, conductor, musician, musical director, stage designer, costumer, and everything that I ever worked with. I, I just always had a great relationship with these people. So I, I can't, I just, want, <laughs> when I was doing Equus, to make this short, I, the guy who was directing it, famous, world fa famous director, John Dexter. Oh, was horrible. Yeah. Of yeah. all the people I ever worked with, he was absolutely awful. Not an awful director, an awful person. And it scared the whole cast every time he said, let's have a run through and we'd have to go in the afternoon and, and you know, sit there. And he, he'd mercilessly pick on somebody, even some of the big names. And uh, But then later I stayed long enough for Richard Burton to come in. And when he came in, he made it very clear to John Dexter that he sh he's not allowed to pull any of that when he's in there. He doesn't want the cast treated like that. So we had this period of where we had a could take a big deep breath and not worried about this guy, you know. But uh, 
through all these years, I've loved absolutely everybody. But if John Dexter called me and asked me to do a brand new show or play or something like that, I'd refuse him. I literally would never work for this man again. <laughs> but other than that, everybody else was terrific. Well, you've been, you've been very lucky then, very lucky. Uh, and of course, Michael Bennett, you worked with on, on Follies. Yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah, Michael is a, was a sweetheart. I mean, we were very close, and um, uh, I did that special number, that Bolero number, with him. And my favorite times during Follies was when everybody left so that uh, Michael Bennett and his Bob Avion and Graziella Danielle, who was a well-known dancer, she and I were partners, and uh, uh, Jonathan Tunick playing the piano. It was just us. And the cast was huge, but they'd all leave, and we, we for a couple of hours, we would just slowly work on this number. And that, I, that was one of the highlights of my career, I think, spending time with them. But Michael, Michael was a doll. He was, he, he was terrific. I loved doing his choreography. I loved working with him. Um, he was just great. That, that Bolero number seems to have been cut from a lot of productions uh, since that original. Well, yeah. Well, you know, in the, when we originally learned it, it was it had slow sections and faster. It was a it was a very sensual, making love while you're dancing kind of number, and uh, we played Vincent and Vanessa, the younger of the older couple, and uh, uh, we they come on and start the dance, then we'd come in front of them and and do the number the way they used to do it back in vaudeville, back in uh, the Follies. And uh, the whole show was like that. So, you know, we had, uh, Graziella was a probably, I'd have to say the best dancer I ever worked with. I mean, she, she could have done that whole number herself. <laughs> but she just, a lot of times since I've danced since I was really young and people knew I danced and uh, a, lot of, a lot of times the girls or the women or my sister who I used to dance with used to try to lead me and instead of letting me lead them uh and but graziella never did that she let me do anything i wanted with her i'd toss her and throw her and, and everything and she just went with it she was just wonderful absolutely wonderful but my uh michael bennett was great you know and i i was i started to do chorus line with him but i left the show before they really got into it uh you left a chorus line. I left a chorus line when we were rehearsing down at uh, Public Theater in New York. Uh, he wanted to, well, actually, I had a friend of mine who was a well-known dancer choreographer named Tony Stevens. We went to dinner one night and he told me about this idea he had about dancers. And dancers want to be more than just dancers and whatnot. And uh, the thing is, I had been working on myself that way in non-paying workshops all over the city. In fact, I'd even turned down Broadway shows because I was more interested in doing that at the time and people thought I was crazy. Well, when we started, he picked all the top dancers in New York to be in this show. It wasn't a chorus line yet, but uh, they were still kind of putting it together. And uh, after several rehearsals, about a week of rehearsals, we had to go real early in the morning because we all had shows to do at night. And I had just met someone who was in a relationship and, and it was just eating up all my time. 
And so when I, I would sit to do the show, they did it in the beginning as a workshop. So people would get up and they talk about how they feel more than they want. They want to do more than what they're doing and all this stuff. And it, and it dawned on me, I thought, I've already been through this for two years. I said, yeah. I'm going to sit here, listen to everybody wanting to do more, you know, because these are the same people that made fun of me because I was I was doing all giving up Broadway shows to go do this workshop. I love them all. Don't get me wrong. It, it, but, you know, I sat there and I thought, wait a minute, you know, and uh, and that uh, Michael took me to lunch and at lunch, I, I told him, you know, I, I said, I really want to act more than dance anymore. And I don't want to. I said, I know whatever you do is probably going to be a hit show. And I said, and I don't want to be seen in another hit show because it makes it difficult to do to act if they only think of you as a dancer. Nowadays, I don't think they do that as much. But back then, they did it a lot. And um and first, Michael was really disappointed. But then he said, you know, he said, I had to stop dancing in shows to become a choreographer. So he says, I understand completely what you mean. And he said, he said, but, you know, uh, yeah, but Margaret Hamill, she said he, he just wrote your song. And I said, oh, he did? He says, yes, he was bringing it in today to play it for you. It's, it was the role of Mike. So I, I can do where that. I got that name from. But yeah, really, I can do that. And but I, I, I couldn't. And to this day, I mean, when I saw the show, it was so wonderful, and you know, went on to be such a fantastic musical. Um, but I've never regret regretted not doing it. Uh, I just, I think I made the right decision for me, and I just went on to other things. So. Yeah, it was, uh, well, originally I was supposed to go to the whole all night evening they were going to have with all these dancers. But my partner at the time, who was ill, I wanted to stay home uh, instead, uh, so I didn't go. But I think Sammy Williams, I think that was his story too, but it was actually my real story too. It was, you know, being in the studio and my sister's dancing and I'm just watching when I was a little kid. And... Uh, I remember thinking, I don't know if I said I can do that, but I thought I want to do that, <laughs> you know, and then I became a student. But the teacher, uh, Miss Brooker, had uh, like a whip, a long stick. And every time I did anything wrong, she'd smack me with that stick. And it really hurt. I went home with all these welts on my legs and my mother and father took me right out of the class. So I never did continue doing it with her. But uh, but it's always basically the same kind of story, sitting there and thinking, well, wait a minute, I can do what she's doing. Let me get up and do it, you know. So it, it's kind of my story, but I think it was based probably on the almost the exact same story that Sammy told. Um, your formative years were spent in Lorraine, Ohio, which uh, you described as quite a beautiful upbringing. Um, it reminded me very much of our town. Yeah, it kind of was, to, to be honest. It was, uh, we had the uh, a steel mill that I think was like seven miles long, where so many of the dads worked. Then we had a big shipping, all the ships, ore ships that would travel to Canada and whatnot. That was there. And then they moved in the Ford Motor Company. So everybody was working and everybody's dad was working, making really good money and all of that. And and uh, I, I loved my upbringing in, in Ohio. I, I've... I've always enjoyed 
everything about the way I was brought up. I had very lo loving parents too. Uh, I never lacked for love, to tell you the truth. Uh, even with people I've had relationships and everything, I never really looked for them. They just sort of appeared, <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, I'm kind of a relationship person and I, I kind of don't take any credit for it. I, I think it's in my genes where somebody has a talent for one thing or another thing. I seem to have a talent for being in relationships with people. I'm a good That's partner. And of course, a talent for dancing as well. When, when did that begin? What what seduced you? What drew you? Was it was it going off to classes with your sister? That started it, and then there was a a, a lag time when I, I was in a play when I was a little kid in grade school that I was the lead in, and uh, called the Ghost Who Watches TV. <laughs> and I don't really quite remember it. But there was a period of time, and we always loved music because uh, my mother was crazy about movie stars. She was from England, and, and she had every movie magazine, every knew who was being, who was with who, and all of that. And so we grew up with that. Plus, my mother was a singer. So we had music playing all the time. And uh, I used to sing under these lights in the living room into a uh, hairbrush <laughs> because it was sort of like a microphone yeah. and uh <laughs> and we were always interested but when i was i think 12 uh my mother's club english girls club was putting on a huge musical called follies and it was uh a, a producer from new york came and a director came from new york and then the costume company sent all these costumes and he was putting on this huge show at our palace theater the reason i'm I stress Palace and Follies as I ended up in a show called Follies on Broadway and worked at the Palace Theater on Broadway. And wow. now in Hilo, I was working at the Palace Theater here. So Follies and Palace have followed me uh, my whole life along, you know. But uh, my sister and I uh, didn't want to go. My sister, I think my sister cried because she was a year older than I was because my mom said, my girlfriend's kids are all going, you're going to go. So we went and I'll tell you, that five minutes changed my entire life. And we did that show and I was, it's so hit me about wanting to perform that uh, uh, we became really good friends with the director of the show. And he told my parents, if you never want to work again, send that kid to New York. I'll never forget that because I use that same line on like a handful of people here in Hilo because I, I want, want them to know it meant so much to me that somebody said that. And I think that's the primary reason that my parents agreed to send me to Boston Conservatory of Music instead of a regular college. So that, that started. My sister and I used to dance on TV in Cleveland and all over the place. I did shows there at the Hannah Theater there. I, I, did, I played Birdie in Bye Bye Birdie and, and whatnot. So, and did a whole bunch of shows there, summer stock type shows. So, was there an aspiration to be a, a Broadway dancer or did you want to be an actor in Hollywood, perhaps? Probably both. Yeah, I want it all. Um, but yeah, but I was, I was dancing. I remember my, my dance, local dance teacher. Uh, my sister and I taught at her school, and then she brought uh, uh, a producer in from New York. Uh, I can't remember his name, but she had me dance in front of him. 
And it was another way of saying, of saying, do you think it's worth it for him to go and make a career out of this? And he said, yes. And so after that, uh, my parents sent me to Boston Conservatory of Music and I was there for three years and I couldn't wait to get to New York. So I didn't finish the fourth year and went to New York and got a Broadway show the first day I arrived. Wow. Which was The Fig Leaves Are Falling. Fig Leaves Are Falling, yeah. A terrible show. <laughs> but it was fun. It was it was our it was our first show, but it was it was one of those shows that the whole time you just knew this was not gonna work. And uh, you know, but we tried and and when you're out of town doing tryouts, they'll cut an entire number and then rehearse a brand new number that day and you have to perform it that night. And, you know, that was eye opening to they do it to the, some of the singers. They say, we're not going to sing that song anymore. We're going to sing this one. Learn it in the next couple of hours because you're going to do it on stage. Uh, but it was fun. And it's it set me up in New York. It only ran six performances, four or six performances, I think, in New York once it opened. Because, uh, you know, first we have previews. We We go out of we used to go out of town for probably around six weeks of Boston, Baltimore, Detroit, and whatnot. And then when you came into town, you go into what's called previews, which means you continue to work on the show and you have audiences coming to see it. But then you let the uh, the news, the critics know, okay, we've decided to open on this particular date. That's when it either works or it doesn't because the critics like it or don't like it. Um, and, uh, but that show flopped, but it set me up completely in New York with apartment and people I know and people who knew me and everything like that, just from being in that flop. It's the only flop I ever did, by the way. Oh, good to hear. Good to hear. Was, was it daunting? <laughs> was it daunting arriving in the Big Apple from, you know, you'd been, you'd grown up in the regional centers and did you know people? Uh, oh yeah. I knew people from, uh, Tommy Toon. He's one of the people that said I should go, and he and he said something about they were doing promises, promises, the Broadway show, and he said you would be great, and, and he was kind of encouraging me to go to New York. But then the next day he thought about it and he said, you know, now that I think about it, stay in school because there's plenty of time to go to New York. But uh, they pushed me so far ahead in school. I mean, when I when I was in school in the dance department, you know, there weren't all these guys that want to dance like they do now. I mean, Chorus Line was responsible for a lot of that, that now everybody wants to dance. You know, it's it's not, for most people, it's not considered a sissy thing anymore. But when I went, there were probably 13 guys in the dance department. But uh, they were always putting me ahead. And I, when I did, by the time I did the second year, I was already doing like the third year. And then the, the third year, um, they, uh, yeah, I had one more year to go in order to actually graduate, which I didn't. And I thought, no, uh, I want to go to New York. It's time because they pushed me ahead so fast, further than everybody else. And so, uh, when I had gone to New York a couple of times, and actually the dance teacher I had in Ohio, who was my mentor, had moved to New York producing um, uh, oh, a whole bunch of shows in New York. She was a producer. So we'd stay at her apartment for Thanksgiving or whatever. And I love New York. I, only, I always loved big cities. So when I went there, I was just excited to get there. There was nothing daunting about it. I, I had arrived and I was... 
And I had auditioned for Fig Leaves of Falling prior to going to the final audition of them saying, you've got the job. But that was the day when I arrived there. And I'm telling you, I walked out of that theater and I danced down the street, the streets of New York. And the people were like applauding and everything. And I was just like so happy, you know, so it was fun. It was fun. Michael, what did the audition process for for Fig Leaves of Falling uh, consist of? Um, first of all, a choreographer I didn't know, but I guess was fairly well known in New York. And there were there see anybody if you go to those auditions. So there were like five hundred guys auditioning for this to be a dancer. They wanted six or eight dancers, and uh, I just did what I do and. To be honest, I'd say 75% of them never danced a step in their life. They just wanted to be in a show. And there were, and then the other 25% were, were pretty good. So, uh, but I got the job. And when I got the job, you know, I was obviously thrilled because I had just uh, arranged for an apartment and whatnot. So that would pay the bills. But um, yeah, it kind of just went from there. It happened now that I think about it kind of fast but it took me years to get there to have it go fast kind of but i i always seem to have fallen into just the right circumstances at the right time and again my my i have a, I have a wonderful family and my mother and father were so warm and loving and wanted me to be happy that was their main thing they just wanted me to be happy but they said we hope you'll go to school so at least you have something in case that doesn't work out well, that wasn't in my vocabulary in case it doesn't work out, really. You know, I, I never had a never worked as a waiter, never did anything like that. I uh, went in and once you're in there, then people know you and then they want you for another job or you go to the audition, they recognize you. And it's just one thing leads to another. And before you know it, you're doing all, all, a whole bunch of shows. So with the fig leaves are falling, you're working alongside Dorothy Loudon. Tell me about Dorothy. Uh, I didn't really, usually when I'm in shows, I become very close with the leads or the star of the show. And, uh, but with Dorothy, uh, I probably stayed back a bit, but she was the best thing in the show. She was absolutely fantastic in the show. And she was the only thing that was fantastic the show because <laughs> at one point they wanted to give away a chicken or a, a cooked chicken to the audience i i can't remember what they were planning on doing but all of us just looked at each other like are they serious <laughs> you know and obviously that didn't work so they didn't do that because of liability and everything so they didn't do all of that but um but dorothy you know we used to always stand in the wings to watch her or whatever because she was absolutely terrific she was a little distant to everyone all i remember her doing is going on stage performing going in her dressing room going on stage performing which is to be expected for someone who's doing the lead of your show but i i even though i didn't really know her she was incredible incredible performer i'd never heard of her before I guess everyone has their own individual process, don't they? And um, they work out what's what's best for them. Um, following uh, Fig Leaves, you uh, land up in a Jerry Herman musical alongside Ann Miller. Yes, I did. <laughs> in Maine. I think I had three months where I wasn't working. And then uh, I got... To, actually, I, I was asked to do 
to be in the show. Um, for one of the producers, John Boab. And uh, so we flew to Florida. It was really only supposed to be six weeks in three different Coconut Grove and Palm Beach and, and whatnot. And uh, it was fun. It, you know, it was an up, joyous show. And Ann Miller was wonderful. And she was, we became very close during the run. And uh, I didn't know at the time that doing it in Florida was to prepare her to go into the Broadway show. So she practiced, it was her out of town. But I don't know that any of us really knew that, but uh, uh, towards the end of the being out of town, she asked me if I would join her in going into the company on Broadway. And uh, I mean, these ladies like tall guys. Yeah. I'm tall. <laughs> when, and, when. you know, the time yeah okay yeah well well our, our sometimes the, they're kind of small dancers not all of them but i mean many of them are small so, and a lot of these ladies are big angela lansbury and all of them they're not little tiny ladies they're they're big so they want guys with them you know so Anne asked me into the show and i of course i was thrilled because i had no idea that was what she was going to do and uh we opened in the I think it was the Broadway theater on Broadway and did the show for about, I don't remember how long it is, three or six months or something. Uh, and at the time, much of the cast uh, in the boys dressing room, these guys had been in the show for like five years or more and every single night for five years. And, uh, that was the thing about a lot of performers, you know, when you get a job, you know, you're getting a salary. And most people that I know stay in the show as long as it runs. But I never do that. I'm out of there after about eight months because I'm I'm on to another thing and another thing. But um, well, I was fortunate because I worked. And a lot of times if they, they weren't working in the job, you know, they weren't getting a salary anymore. So, but when I went in uh, for about a week, they kept sort of, bad mouthing about Ann Miller. Now they didn't know her. They had just started rehearsing with her and already there was all this awful stuff going on. And one day uh, I had finally had it. I was quiet and trying not to make waves because she brought me in and I knew there was animosity because she had the nerve to bring someone into the company. And uh, I remember standing up and really letting them have it about they would not even be working if she wasn't in the show. And I remember what I said, but uh, I'm one of those people that to get me to be angry, you have to practically push me to the edge of a cliff. And just as I'm about to fall up down, that's when I will stand up for myself. <laughs> not anymore. I, I'm better about that now, but back then, you know, because I never wanted to make waves or anything, but boy, they never said another word after that. And when I... That night when I went into Anne's, she called me into her dressing room and I went in there and all she did was give me a great big hug and it whispered in my ear, thanks, Mike. That's all. We never talked about it again after that, you know, but she, she remained friends for a long, long time. She was, she was, she's taking me home in her limousine. Wow. Not every night, maybe two two or three times a night because I lived, she lived in Essex house, which is on central park South. Yeah. And I lived in the apartment building right behind it. So I'd go and I'd go up there and we'd 
laugh and have fun and she take off all those wigs and she had <laughs> which she's no enormous wigs but her hair is beautiful it's jet black down to practically her waist but it's too much work to try and do that before you go on so she had all of her she had all of her wigs that she gave names to Oh. And people could say, Michael, what were the names she gave? To? But I didn't know. I had never even heard of that. But it's a big thing online where they say, oh, one was named this, that, and the other. You know, and I was as surprised as anybody else because I didn't know that. But Dusty Springfield um, also named a wigs, I believe. Did she? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, for these women to go on stage with their regular hair, I mean, I, I know... Um, Angela Lansbury cut her hair real short when she was in Maine. So she didn't have to wear wigs and she didn't have to fiddle with it every night. Anne's hair was so long, it would have taken hours for them to put it up every night and whatnot. So she she loved, she preferred her wigs, you know. And as you know, they kind of went off over in that direction. <laughs> they were like these big waves that flew off and everything like that. But uh, in Anne's apartment, she they rented her two full apartments because one apartment was nothing but her clothing and her jewelry and you know i mean she lives in california and the, but what she brought with her she had one bedroom that was nothing but fur coats i'll never forget it i walked in i was like oh my god you know she had every kind of fur coat in every color it came in you know ermines and and oh just absolute mink she she was given a fur coat she called me in again and she said i gotta come see this and i came in and she's in this full length it was almost like a cape it had arms but dragged on the floor behind her and it was inset with pink flowers or not 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 pink flowers white flowers in among this all the mink and everything but they were mink flowers (laughs) you know i was like Oh my gosh! Oh, so and so just gave me this, and I, you know, and I was like, I didn't even ask who gave it to her. You know, I mean, it was a very expensive coat, but you know, she she cared for all of her fans, so she always she was like a Joan Crawford in that sense that she always looked wonderful. She never wanted to be caught with her hair in rollers or not looking absolutely like the star she was. So that was kind of fun. A lot of Broadway performers to um, to pay the bills when they weren't at a show would do industrial shows. And I know you d- you did one uh, called the Millican Breakfast Show. Tell us about um, those shows, those industrial shows. Well, actually, I did about 30 industrials. Wow. We used it because we weren't working, but a lot of us were doing shows in New York. Uh, if, if there was a time we could do it, we'd do them to supplement income because they used to pay you well. But nobody paid you like Millican Breakfast Show paid you. This was the king of all industrial shows. It was done in New York at the, at the Waldorf, I believe. And they did it every year. And the, the producers and Mr. Millican Fabrics uh, himself, um, they'd hire everybody who was on Broadway, the, the latest stars and everything. They'd build a show around kind of one of the shows. So I did that with with Gwen Burden and uh, oh gosh a, a a lot of really big stars and they'd also hire the directors and everybody and at the not only was the show wonderful and that every morning when we came in because it was done real early in the morning 
uh, for all their buyers and whatnot to show off fabric. So it was like a, a fashion slash musical show. And, um, but they'd have food. I've never seen food the likes of which they served us for breakfast and for lunch if we were there for lunch. And sometimes they'd take us to our shows, the limousines. I mean, and then at the end of the show, everybody lined up on stage, cast of like 50 or 60. And Mr. Milliken would hand out checks, big bonuses. And we got, I remember I got a bonus of like $6,000 or something. And, and, uh, but the stars, some of them got 50,000, 100,000, $150,000 bonuses for doing the show. So obviously everybody wanted to do this show every year. I did it uh, twice. It, it was it, it was absolutely wonderful fun. Wow! Then we go do our shows at night or a matinee or whatever. Yeah, it was great. And then the industri- other industrial shows. A lot of times you flew places. They were for cars or or I went all over the country in some of those shows. Uh, and those were when I wasn't necessarily working directly on Broadway, but I would supplement my income with like three or four of them. And uh, I'm not even sure if they they do those anymore. I mean, like you said earlier, I'm talking about an era (laughs) in show business. (laughs) Very different now from what I understand. It's not quite this same thing. So, uh, but they they were fun. And yeah, they, they kept people who weren't immediately working on Broadway working. The only time I didn't work on Broadway was a three month period after doing after fig leaves are falling shut down and i had about three month period and then uh, uh i got the show with Maine with uh ann miller and then went into applause directly from that then went into follies directly from applause and, and pippin and all those other shows uh, costumes are pretty important to uh, a performer they uh, the character's skin um tell me about some of the costumes that that you uh, got to wore during your career well first of all i can tell you that one of the shows that uh bob fossey's secretary called me to, to come audition for was uh chicago and i had i was always self-conscious about how my being very thin and uh i would figure out who the costume designer was and contact them and say, do you have any idea what the guys might be wearing in that show? <laughs> and I remember they, they weren't like, they, they weren't like you see it now. They, it wasn't, you know, now they're usually very sexy and in black costumes and they do it in front of an orchestra and everything. It's fantastic. But did you ever see the original show? No, I didn't. No, no, no. Chicago. In Chicago, it was more Pippinish. It was, uh, the guys were just in top hats and tights and tails and the women were just like bras and it, it was completely different well as soon as i found out the guys would be wearing tights i turned down the show <laughs> I wouldn't do the show because of that you know, i am not gonna eight times a week be wearing tights i love pippin because a lot of times i had my shirt off something i would never normally do but i would do it on stage I had my shirt off and I'd have these tight white pants, but they weren't tights. They were regular uh, stretchy pants and tall black boots. And it just, and a sword in my hand, it just made you feel differently. 
I, I felt great coming out there in that outfit and everything that we wore in that outfit in that show was was great fun to wear. Um, a lot of the shows, well, they were always putting me in tuxes and tails and top hats and things, you know, and uh, uh, I kind of got tired of being, because when you're wearing a tux and everything, you know, you're so closed up with everything when you're trying to dance, but Pippin, on the other hand, is completely different. And also applause in Maine. They were great fun shows to do, uh, very up and joyous and whatnot. And when I went into Follies, it was a whole different kind of show, uh, more serious. And uh, it took me a while to get used to that because we had to do a lot of stuff in slow motion. But uh, the costume for that uh, and in other shows, when you're out of town and you're trying on the costumes, this is a secret I wouldn't tell everybody, but if you don't like your costume, you rip it. <laughs> or if it's too tight, sometimes they won't listen. So you rip it. You know, even an applause, the stage hands there were big sets on these rollers and an entire room would come on and go off. And once they, they allowed it to crash into the wall during uh, out of town tryouts, and we luckily just got out of the way, but the stagehands did that because they didn't like the set. Wow. So that was their way of saying either fix this or we're not going to do this. And, and so dancers were known to, of course I never did, but dancers were known to, uh, uh, you know, if they really hated something, they lose it or do, or do something to get rid of it. But most of the times, it, it was pretty good. And the customers were wonderful. And the people who worked with them in our, we have all had dressers and whatnot that, that did the costumes. But costume means a lot to a performer because, you know, anything that we do, whether it be dance wise or costumes, I ask myself, okay, you're going to be wearing this or doing this eight times a week for maybe a year, you know, and you want to be either like it or at least be comfortable in it. Um, are you familiar at all with Follies, the show Follies? Very much so, yes. Yeah. You know, it's such a big cult following now. Uh, but there was a number in there called Loveland, which is a big dream number. And we all come out and I was right down front on, on this right stage, which is on an angle, just over the orchestra pit. And so I'm like face to face with the people in the front row. And we had to wear the, we were dressed like Dresden dolls, which are porcelain dolls and in uh, like French costumes and beautiful costumes, but these big hats and, and whatnot. We hated that costume. <laughs> We'd be backstage and all the guys were, were like, Jesus Christ, I'm 28 years old or whatever. And it got me dressed up like a stupid doll or something. But as soon as we got on stage, we did it full out, you know, and that was fine. But we, I mean, we'd laugh about it. It wasn't so serious. But I saw it once from out in front of the audience when my partner was out. Right. And it was absolutely gorgeous. It, it, beautiful looking. Nobody cared about the individual people. It was just the general look. The costumers are, what a job, boy, to to costume an entire show like that. It's a lot of work. The Follies, is, yes, as you say, has become very much a, a cult phenomenon. But uh, 
it's obviously also one of the the great musicals of the, of the wonderful Stephen Sondheim. I'm sure there are so many stories which which you can share, but perhaps uh, tell us about walking into that rehearsal room on on the first day, and you know there you've got Gene Nelson, Alexis Smith, Yvonne DiCarlo, Harold Prince, Michael Bennett, Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> yeah, everywhere um, you look, because I I don't think we knew. I mean, if Stephen was doing how Prince was directing it along with Michael Bennett and stuff, but um, I don't recall that we knew all the people that were actually in it. So like you say, actually I wrote a story about this, being in that room, walking in that room, everybody, including the stars themselves, were starry-eyed with all the people that were in that room, all the well-known people from past eras and all the movie stars and everything like that. It was an unforgettable evening. And when you do a first evening like that, like Stephen Sondheim would sit and uh, I think Hal, Hal Prince would uh, tell you what scene it is and whatnot. And then, then uh, you know, he Sondheim would play the role and sing the song. Say, oh, this song is for so-and-so. And they'd play it and sing it and everybody would applaud. And then they do the next one. It gives you kind of a uh, a look at what the show is going to become uh, but you know to be although I enjoyed doing the show I didn't hate it but I, I enjoyed doing it you know it was very different we were if you talk about costumes we were always we always had wigs on you know uh, in all the numbers and uh, so it's almost like you didn't exist you were just whatever this particular look was and on top of that, one number we faced upstage the entire number. Uh, it's a number that Alexis Smith does. Jesse and Lucy. Uh, but you know, for years and years, I never I never thought of that show when I left it to go to Pippin. Uh, it, I mean, I knew I did it and it was wonderful and all that, but it was over and I was on to the next thing. And for years, I never ever brought it up. And I was at a party in Hollywood once and two guys came up to me and and the first thing they said was, are you Michael Messina? I said, yes. And they said, we heard you died. And I said, no. <laughs> I said, I'm still here in front of you. you know? I'm and still here. Said, you were in. Yeah, I'm still here. Yes, that's my song. <laughs> that's why I love that song. Uh, backstage, uh, Yvonne DiCarlo and I used to, before she'd go on, <laughs> We were always backstage laughing because she she was a kind of a naughty little girl. <laughs> adorable. Absolutely adorable. But, you know, we'd make jokes and everything. And she was very fond of her body. And uh, uh, and then the stage manager would every night would come around. He'd go, you two, stop it. Shh. You know, and we'd get real serious. Then he'd walk away. And we'd both break out laughing. And then it was almost time for her to go on. And she would grab herself under here and lift them up and says, I'm on. And she <laughs> dramatically walked up stage to do that number every single night. And Dorothy Collins, I used to stand behind during most of the performances because when we were out of town, they were putting, they were trying to make it look like Harlow or something and it wasn't working for her. And she made about a, I, I went, I said, well, I'm going to go stand behind you as, as your support. And she was relieved for that. And I just stand behind the curtain when she sang the song. And uh, 
it got to be a thing where I did it almost every single night because uh, she'd sometimes ask me, even from across the room, she'd look at me and nod her hair like, were, were you there? And I go, yeah, 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 I was right behind you. You know, so we all had certain fun little things that we did. But uh, I didn't know Follies was so liked. It wasn't an enormous hit on Broadway. We only did it for about a year on Broadway. Then it went to Los Angeles. Uh, but now it's like, it's so iconic. I mean, it, you know, it, it's nice to know that I had been in a show that was a cult classic or whatever it's become, you know. And uh, and you mentioned that they cut out the number I did. A lot of that was because uh, uh, Hal Prince wanted to cut that number first and foremost when it was running too long. And Michael Ben and him were together for a long time. And Michael told me later that he told Hal Prince that you cut that number and I'm out of the show. Wow. And so they agreed to, to make it faster. So when before it was so beautiful to do, then it became just like a faster number to do. It still looked good and everything, but it was, uh, we, were, we were both a little, dis including Michael was a little disappointed that he had to do that, that it was the only way to keep it in the show. You know, so there's all kinds of things that go on that people don't know about. And that's why I'm saying that these other people who are fans know so much more than I do. Every time I read their comments, I'm like, really? <laughs> Did we do that? I don't remember that, you know, but they, they're fans. So they have it all, all down, you know, I enjoy reading it. I think part of the, uh, the cult attraction is that it, not only being a, a, quite an exquisite show, it's a show that celebrates our elders, you know, there's a lot of great roles for our older performers who've had established careers and we can get to embrace them again. Uh, and, you know, for all of them, it was it was comebacks for most of them that to be able to be asked to be in this show. And the other thing was that every everybody that was in the show, uh, all the stars and, and whatnot, were exactly like the character they were portraying. I mean, it was so close, you know, you walk into Alexis Smith's dressing room and it was just a designer had done it. It was elegant and beautiful. And then uh, Dorothy would ask me to come in her dressing room. I go into her dressing room. It was all pink flowers and green and, you know, kind of <laughs> childlike. Beautiful, the childlike. And then Yvonne Carlo told me, she said, Mike, come here. You got to see my dressing room because they have designers do them all. And and her dressing room was black wallpaper with silver stars and red furniture. And I I my I was like, oh wow. I said, what do you think? She said, isn't it isn't it fun? She said, I wanted it to be like Vegas. You know, but they were exactly like the characters they portrayed on stage. Even the lesser one, Gene Nelson was wonderful. He was always, he was never happy with the number that he did. Uh, it was it Buddy's he, Blues? He, Buddy's Blues, yeah. And sometimes he would ask me to watch it. I usually watch it almost every night. And he'd say, how'd it go? And I'd go, oh, that was good. That was better or whatever. Yeah, but he, he worked on that number. You know, there's very few people that work like movie people. Because they know whatever they do is going to last forever. So they perfect it and perfect it. And I've always kind of been that way too. And a lot of the Broadway people are as well. Um, but he, uh, yeah, we, we discussed it a lot. 
because he loved the bolero. But he, I, I think it's because it wasn't the kind of number you get like people standing up going crazy. And uh, but Ethel Chate, uh, the original Broadway sang, baby, uh, Broadway baby, she brought down the house every single night, and everybody kind of judged that by how they were doing. I know Gene did. And uh, so when he wasn't, you know, everybody wants like the audience to go crazy and applaud and everything, but it wasn't that kind of a number. I think he got used to that eventually. But uh, there are a lot of people in it too that were like Fred Nelson, Fred the Kelly was in it, who's Gene Kelly's brother. And I sat around with, with them and Gene Nelson and, and Ethel Chate once. We used to love to hear their stories. And they talked about Broadway back in their day. Wow. And they talked about how Ethel used to go to be in three shows at once. She'd, she'd go and sing in, in the, you know, Vaudeville or whatever, Follies with Ziegfeld. And then they'd have a limousine waiting for her. She'd get in the car and they'd take her to the next theater. And she'd do a number there. And they'd take her in, in her car and go to another theater. And she'd do a number there. And I remember Gene Kelly saying, he, said, he says, all of Broadway and Times Square were Broadway shows, Broadway shows, Broadway shows everywhere. He said, you couldn't look anywhere without seeing another Broadway show. You know, and for us, you know, that was their era. So we, we never said anything. We just sat there with our mouths open, taking in every word. Michael, didn't you have a, a period uh, after you left a show um, and started a new show and that show finished before the old show and you would go and join them during the curtain call? Yeah. Yeah. I, I had been in a plot for about eight months and then I got cast in Follies. And when Follies and Applause were both running at the same time and uh, Follies ended just a little bit sooner than Applause ended. So I sometimes I would they were just down the street from each other. I would come out. I'd, I'd go over to the theater and get up and do the bows with the applause cast <laughs> and of course our pictures were still on the marquee not the marquee but on around the theater and they didn't change any of that but uh it was fun i'd go in nobody thought nobody batted an eyelid not even the stage manager or anything they were, they were just like hey hi mike how you doing and i'd get up and do the whole final <laughs> it wasn't just it was a whole kind of number that was done and so i would go and do that you know and then i'd leave and go back to the other show and change and stuff so yeah it was fun it was the only time i think i was in two running shows at the same time uh of course you betty bacall played margot channing were, were you still with the show when debbie reynolds or raquel welsh raquel welsh uh no i left the show after about eight months right i didn't stay with it when uh uh the other stars came in to do it. Uh, Raquel Welch and before her, the one who played it in the movie, who played Eve in the movie, um, uh, in the original movie with Betty Davis and... And Baxter. Okay, good. Yeah, and Baxter. Uh, but I wasn't in it then. The show went on for several years after I left, but uh, I, I would only run over there when I was still in Follies and while Lauren Bacall was still playing the role. Lauren Bacall was good to work with. You alluded to that earlier but i know yeah she's got a lot of bad reputation like that but she was always great with me and i don't know if part of that was because i did that little bit with her in the beginning 
that we became kind of close with because of that. But uh, no, she was, I thought she was terrific. I loved working with her and uh, uh, I've got nothing but nice things to say about her. She lived across the street from me in the Dakota apartment building. And I lived down the street on 73rd street and I'd run into her at the, in the park all the time. And sometimes we just sit on park bench for an hour and chat, you know, but uh, no, she was, she was a, sweetheart as far as i was concerned but i have heard some horror stories <laughs> by other about her being rude or something you know but i don't know uh, it, I, I wasn't that wasn't part of how i knew her yeah and the funny thing is that, that it's it's interesting the judging of of someone like that if you want their autograph and they they won't they don't give it and walk on or something like that that image of them that means that they're an awful person you know, there's a million reasons why they do what they do. You know, what I mean, so uh, just just having one little incident with somebody, it's it's funny the bad taste it can have in someone's mouth that they think, oh, she's awful, and I I wouldn't go see her again because who does she think she is or whatever. But you know, I they're people too. Who knows what they're going through at the moment that whatever occurred. You know, so I, I really don't say anything about it because I, I didn't experience any of that with her. Michael, thank you. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but we have lives that we need to continue. <laughs> and as you can tell, I can talk and talk. Because one thing leads to another and leads to another, but I appreciate it. And, and above all else, it's so great to see you again. Yeah, absolutely. We, we must Zoom more often at cocktail hour. <laughs> Um, although your cocktail hour is um, slightly different to mine and uh, I might be drinking cocktails at breakfast time. <laughs> you know, we used to we used to have a property in, in Australia. And once we left and then we had we had uh, breakfast with a whole bunch of people and we flew back to California and went down to our house in Laguna Beach and had breakfast the same day with the people there. You know, and uh, if people talk about tri time travel, well, that was very weird, but it was kind of cool. I loved Australia. We both did. Well, I loved Hawaii, so we're, we're even. Good. <laughs> Good. You'll come visit. Absolutely. I, I look forward to uh, to another, another visit indeed. Uh, Michael, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Wonderful to hear those stories. My pleasure. Um, and And take care. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. What a stellar career. Thank you, Michael, for allowing us a window into that momentous time on Broadway and to your brilliant career in the arts, on stage and on screen. I look forward to our continued chats and hopefully another sojourn to the Big Island. Join me in the next episode of Stages when my guest will be Jeremy James. Jeremy is a theatre director, actor, dramaturg and teaching artist whose work and research have taken him to more than 20 countries over the past 25 years. He has much to say about pedagogy, teaching the craft of acting, finding the truth and being authentic. It's a riveting conversation and we look forward to your company for that one. That's in episode 388 of The Stages Podcast. I'm Peter Eyes. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe. And I'll catch you next time on Stages.